everybody. Welcome back to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. I'm your host, Carrie Parker, and we've got another great interview show for you today. First of a two-parter. Uh, talked with a gentleman named Chris Schaffer, and he is a really interesting guy. Wrote a very interesting book called Data versus Democracy, How Big Data Algorithms Shape Opinions and Alter the Course of History. And we talk a lot about how there is so much data now and how the economy has shifted. We, we call it the information age, and it's really, it's really even not quite that. And uh, I don't want to give away the spoiler, so so I'll wait for the interview for that. I found uh, this book on A Press, which is my happens to be my publisher as well. I was looking through some of the the, the other books on A Press that were kind of in my genre and ran across this book, and I thought that looks really interesting. And I read the blurb. And uh, through my contacts at APRESS, reached out and found the author, and we kind of hooked up through email, and it took actually quite a while uh, to get to get this together. Our schedules were just not lining up, but I'm really glad we finally did, because it was really, it's really a great interview, and there's a lot of really interesting and very pertinent uh, stuff that we talk about here that's, you know, relevant to our democracy, obviously, since that's at the title of the book, but, you know, we talk, uh, eventually we'll talk about uh, 2016 election and Brexit and, you know... One of the, I think the most interesting things about the book is it really gets into the nitty gritty of why this stuff affects us the way it does and how people have gone to great lengths to figure out what it is that gets and captures our attention. You know, us being just humans and just regular human instinct and evolutionary things that we've developed that make us pay attention to some things and not others. And uh, and then how that, for you know, how that's used just trailing in advertising uh, and then we'll get into the more dark and insidious side where it's actually used to manipulate us. So anyway, with that little lead in, uh, let's get straight to the interview with Chris Schaffer. Chris Schaffer is a data scientist and web intelligence analyst. He's also the author of the book, Data vs. Democracy, How Big Data Algorithms Shape Opinions and Alter the Course of History, which we will be discussing today, and uh, co-authored a report called The Tactics and Tropes of the Internet Research Agency, which was commissioned by the U.S. Senate uh, about the Russian election uh, influence operations. So uh, welcome to the show, Chris. Thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, I, I, you know, after re reading your book, it, it was just fascinating. It was really, very well done and uh, really looking forward to get into it. We can't possibly go everything here, but uh, <laughs> some really, really good subjects in there. So um, let's start with some of the basics of the book, which is, you know, talking about data. And, and one of the things you kind of establish early on is that, you know, our, you know, the amount of information and our access to it has changed a lot in, like, say, the last 30 years. Kind of walk us through that. How do we get to where we are now? Yeah, well... <laughs> Uh, the, what's the history of computing and the internet? Um, mm -hmm. I, yeah, I, we, so we started when I was, when I was a kid <laughs> growing up in school. Um, we had a, I, I was fortunate enough to live in a, well, I don't know if it's fortunate, it's the word for it, but I lived in a place that had maybe a couple dozen TV stations on broadcast and that was pretty exceptional. Wow. Um, you know, my, my wife had, I think five, mm -hmm. it was big news when they got a sixth. Um, we had local libraries. Um, my, my library had a subscription to a very slow digital search thing. This was the 80s. So we were just starting to get into that. Um, and I thought it was the coolest thing ever, um, this idea of plugging a, a, a phone into your computer and getting information was, mm. was brand new. I mean, like, you know, I, I watched war games probably 100 times as a kid <laughs> growing up. You know, just <laughs> that, that stuff just fascinated me, what you could do with it. But yeah. Um, you know, we've gotten to the point where, um, you know, the, the uh, 
people talk about this all the time, the, the power of the computer on, on the space shuttle or, or especially like the Apollo missions is nothing compared to what most of us have in our pocket as we right. walk around on our phone. I mean, um, the, the data storage that we have, um, the capabilities, the things that took up rooms can can fit on, you know, basically a contact lens now it's it's uh it's fascinating and and the ability to get information across the globe has just accelerated and uh economists historians technology scholars have talked a lot about how what uh, about what this has done to our economy um in the 80s early 90s we were talking about the information age and the information economy and we kind of blew right past that because we uh we went from the point of information being precious and valuable and hard to obtain to the thing that we all cared about because now we could get it but because we could all get it supply and demand said you know what it's so easy to find it's so easy to copy it's so easy to transmit it, it can't be expensive no matter how valuable it is mm. it can't be expensive and uh you know the the news industry the publishing industry is still figuring out the music industry film are, are still figuring out how to deal with this uh how easy it is to copy and transmit information and access information and how little people want to pay for information mm -hmm. or entertainment that really changes the way our whole society functions uh and as a result people are starting to talk now about the attention economy uh the idea that the precious thing in our economy it's it's not land it's not goods, it's not services, it's not even information. The precious thing that determines the value of a transaction and the kind of relationship that businesses and individuals have is attention. Mm -hmm. um, it's not who's got the best or the most information. Who controls access to information doesn't control um, the economy, doesn't thrive in the economy. The person who controls attention, whether that's they have the ability to garner or even manipulate other people's attention or they have the ability to control their own attention so that they don't themselves get manipulated. Right. Um, that those are the people who are going to thrive or who are thriving in this economy. And think about it this way, like, like money used to flow kind of like the opposite direction of the main commodity, right? I would give you money and you would give me a book. I would give you money and you would give me food. I would give you money, you give me information. We're now at the point where, my money as a consumer is going the same direction as my attention, but my attention mm. is the precious thing, <laughs> uh, mm. far more than that movie I watch on Netflix or that book that I read. And that, I think, more than anything, is the big paradigm shift that is totally – like we, we can't take the old systems and uh, apply them in a new context just with a different basic thing that we're after. The, the paradigm is just totally different. And that's what we're still trying to get our, our heads around. And, and that means the role of advertising and, and clickbait and all that stuff is, is playing a disproportionate role and algorithms playing a disproportionate role in how we get information, how we get entertainment, how we get from point A to point B in our car. Mm. <laughs> and it's, it, it's all bound up in this, in this one kind of fundamental problem of, of information overload and attention uh, the attention economy. Yeah. And I, and it drives me actually 
bonkers because I mean, it, I think back in the day, like the <laughs> first evidence for me of this was the pop-up ads, right? Cause they were, they were, you know, yeah. there used to be banners and little things, but that, that wasn't enough, you know, the, then they had the flash ads like shoot the bug, shoot the bug. And you know, all these flashy things moving around to try to get your eyeballs. And then there were the pop-up things, which we had to eventually block. And, uh, it, you know, the, so yeah, I can, they could definitely see where the, the attention grabbing, there's just so much to pay attention to, you know, for any one, you know, advertiser or marketer to get, you know, our eyeballs takes a lot more effort. And unfortunately they have to go, they get so overzealous in doing it that it just drives us nuts. Right. I mean, it's, it's almost an arms race, right? Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> and that accelerates so fast and, and it changes how we interact with media. And, and I, I want to really avoid it. I'm a, I'm a, a former teacher. I, I still teach uh, when I get the opportunity. So I, I really want to avoid the you know, kids these days kind of <laughs> argument, but, but it, it's true for, adults as well. And, you know, our ability to stand in line at a grocery store and, and be bored and, and mm. let a thought come to mind is, is gone. Yeah. <laughs> uh, for, for a lot of us, it, it takes a lot of discipline to, to avoid just being sucked into those things because they are engineered to target some of our most deeply seated, evolutionarily hardwired psychological tendencies, um, things that were part of our survival uh, you know, in an evolutionary past, like our ability to have our attention completely taken away to that, that danger thing in the environment so that we could avoid it or deal with it. I mean, nowadays we call it vulnerabilities, um, even though it's, it's served us well in the past, right. those are being tapped into constantly and we have to work harder and harder and, and employ more and more tools to help us just keep our focus on the thing that we want to be focused on. Right. Yeah. I, when, you know, when my daughters are growing up, but you know, and I think this is, this is somewhat generational too. I, I felt, I really felt like, you know, the kids were overscheduled. Like they, you know, they always had something going on and it, and it was almost to the point where we had to have something going on. And I, you know, and I come from a divorce family. So, you know, my ex-wife and I would kind of differ on this opinion. And I used to tell my daughters, like, you need to learn to be bored. You know, you, you need to get, let yourself get to the point where you're bored and, and actually, you know, think about what you want to do and, and deliberately choose to do something. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I, I hear you. I feel you. Um, the other thing, too, it seems to me, this is always kind of an observation I've had is that the and we'll we'll probably work through these phases during this interview. But, you know, advertising seems to be, you know, uh, in the whole in the tracking around uh, you know, what, what I want to see or what I might be likely to buy, you know, first it seemed like it was just kind of gathering data, you know, to, just to see what interests are, like, what do people like, what do they don't like? And then, then eventually you got to the, to the point where, okay, now that I know that I'm going to, I'm actually going to put the things in front of this person that I think based on my data that they want to buy. But now it seems like, and that's kind of, I think the point of your book is we're getting to the point where it's not, that's not enough anymore. Now it's actually, I want to influence you. I want to make you want something that you may not have wanted before. Um, so anyway, that just seems like the progression to me, but I'm sure we'll get there. So let, let's start with just the data, data overload part. So we've got so much data. One of the uh, factoids I pull in your book, I think you said, is that in 2013, science estimated that 90% of the data in the entire world had been created in the previous two years alone, um, which, you know, so the, the curve is just this exponential curve of data creation. So that's where Google yeah, yeah. came in, right? That, that, that's what Google solved for us right? and, and other search engines now and other these algorithmic things that we're going to talk about is they helped us, you know, find the needles in the haystack, help us kind of sift, sift through that stuff. 
but that has its own that has its own issues. I mean, aside from you know perhaps that being manipulated, I mean, just the fact that it's ruling some things out and some things in creates kind of a filter bubble, right? Yeah, I mean, the phrase "filter bubble" or "echo chamber" is is somewhat fraught. I mean, there's there's certainly something to it, but I, I think we we can also miss something uh, with with those terms. I mean, it, in terms of information overload, yeah, when we start to rely on the same set of external tools for a large number of tasks, or like you know, so let's take education again. You get a lot of teachers telling their students, "Don't go to Wikipedia; it's not reliable because mm-hmm. anybody can provide information." I think that is patently false. I think of all the mm-hmm. digital information platforms out there, Wikipedia is not perfect, but the um, the the most resistant to. Mm-hmm. Uh, disinformation, and they actually employ bots and automation, and, and as well as volunteers, to to help them deal with that problem. Uh, th- there's still vulnerabilities, but I, it's it's far better than than a lot of other sources. Mm. So so I, as as a digital studies uh, teacher for for a couple of years, get these students completely opposed to the idea of Wikipedia. It was, it was hardwired. That's no good. And I was like, well, where else are you going to go? And <laughs> they all go to Google. I was like, that's that's where your teachers <laughs> went. <laughs> they, they would all go to Google or you know, maybe they were really savvy. They'd go to DuckDuckGo and, and have a privacy conscious, but you know, one tool to rule them all kind of an idea. Yeah. Um, those do not have the same protections that Wikipedia has or that um, a library has or a uh, a reputable journalistic outlet with an editorial staff um, would have, right? And so all of these things are programmed by people. Yeah, people have biases. Those, those biases could be, you know, the the team working on developing that software or that algorithm is not representative of all the, you know, cultural and and ethnic and biological differences within our society, and and so they miss something. Mm. Or it it could be that you know, there are just things that someone didn't think of at the time because they were moving really fast to try to get the product out the door. Right. Or it could be that the tool was designed for one thing, designed very particularly for that, with a lot of research, and then someone else says, hey, we could use it for this. <laughs> and it produced some pretty good results on their test cases, which mm. was not a full battery of tests. And and it just stuck. And, and it wasn't anyone's job to go back and make corrections and add nuance to it until a problem was discovered. Uh, and so there, there's all kinds of reasons why the results might be problematic, like it, not just like it makes a mistake. I mean, ultimately, if I'm searching for a book and, you know, there's 15 search results and 14 of them are completely wrong, but, but it only I only need one to be right mm. before I give up, you know, <laughs> to, to find what I need. But when it comes to information about like, you know, what illness might I have or what doctor should I go to? Who should I vote for? is this the kind of person I might want to spend the rest of my life with? Like these, these kind of questions that are, are pretty significant, there's going to be information that we might not get that we might need or that we might get that is not correct or out of context mm. or um, incomplete in some really uh, problematic way. Uh, and again, that's before anybody's doing any manipulation right. or, or even – even before we're even talking incompetence, just because someone <laughs> didn't think of something, right? Um, oh yeah, you know, you know, the Apollo program had this problem. Like they they interviewed one of the um, astronauts about the Apollo One fire, and he said, "Why why did this happen? Uh, you know, is it the engineers' fault? Is it NASA's fault?" He's like, "Failure of imagination." 
<laughs> just didn't think of it. <laughs> um, they had half the PhDs on the planet, or at least in the Western world, working on this project, the best test pilots in the world. And no one thought of the door needing to open the other way. Mm. Um, in, in fact, it had opened the other way, and that caused a problem that almost killed someone. So they flipped it. Oh my. <laughs> right. And and so like that that just happens when when we're engineering something, we're creating something, we're we're gonna make mistakes. And the faster we go, the more likely it is that something will go wrong in real life, so to speak, as opposed to in just a testing environment. And and so it might not be anyone's fault, but we do need to be aware of it because the more we rely on a single tool to do a lot of different jobs. And and that tool is developed by a very small number of, of people who, as smart and capable as they may be, don't think of everything that applies to everyone in every situation this tool might be used. You know, there's there's going to be things that come up that cause problems. And without assigning blame, we still need to be aware of that so that we can address them and move forward in ways that are that are productive and, and improve the situation for the, the next people to use that tool. So we had, we also play a part in this too because we we because Google does remember past searches and of course Google's in so many other parts of our lives and they are amassing all sorts of data about what we do and location and our emails and calendars and all these things that Google has for us that are so nice to use but to the point where we are in some sense programming Google I mean a lot of people look at Google as like that is the internet like that's how I get to everything and but we are training Google. All, because of all this, we're training it to give us certain results over others to the point where, and I forget if you actually mentioned this book, but you take two different people uh, and have them start the same Google search. And Google, of course, helpfully uh, tries to fill in what you think it might be asking. But what it's going to show for me is going to be different than what it shows for somebody else because Google has been trained differently for that person. And and then you also talk a little about confirmation bias. So it, there's, because of this feedback, does are we not also training Google to filter for us? Absolutely. I mean, we we are essentially partners with the platforms, whether we like it or not. In fact, we increasingly don't like it <laughs> that our data is being used for their monetary gain and in some cases to be used in, in manipulative campaigns that, that hurt people, maybe even hurt us. But yeah, I, I think that's an important perspective to take into account. We are providing data in certain forms that are tuning the algorithm. Uh, the problematic side of that is we don't always get to decide which data mm -hmm. uh, is included, which data isn't. And in, in some cases, uh, that means that maybe information we wanted to be private isn't anymore. And uh, or, or maybe even if we don't care about Google or Facebook or you know the Russians, the Iranians, the NSA, whatever, we, we still might not want certain autocomplete results showing up when, you know, like our kids use the family computer <laughs> because mm -hmm. of what we had been looking at, you know, and, you know, I retold the story in the book that I'm sure your listeners have probably heard about the, the father who was mm -hmm. um, told his teenage <laughs> daughter was pregnant by Target, uh, targeted ads from Target, <laughs> mm -hmm. right, um, before uh, she brought it up with the family. And uh, th these are things that you know, we want to have some control over what of our data goes into this. But also, I, I think one thing you're, you're getting at is that a lot of what we're getting that's that's negative is is something that to to some extent we're we're asking for. Like, uh, not really the maybe the best way to put it, but we are using products that give us convenience, mm -hmm. and we have um, tacitly and oftentimes without fully 
being aware of the consequences, we have tacitly agreed to pay for these tools with our data in, in ways that a lot of people now are, are concluding are, is actually more expensive than if we just mm-hmm. paid a couple bucks a month for each of these things. Mm-hmm. Um, the bottom line is we wouldn't pay for that. They wouldn't get the data from us. They wouldn't be able to develop these tools that exist now that work as well as they can without that data. So it's like we need that arrangement to get these convenient tools. But there's a trade-off both as individuals and as a society. Now, on the other hand, we can use that to help move the problem or move the situation in a in a good direction, um, right? So I had a student, I, I think I mentioned this in, in my book, she realized as we were talking about algorithmic bias and uh, like image search results, that as a young woman of color, most of the images coming up in search results for professions and fields she was considering studying did not look like her, mm. but they also didn't look like the real stats either. They mm. looked like our bias that was then reinscribed through our clicking on images as we performed these searches, right? right? And that's that's a little bit different of, of a kind of right. input here, right? And so she's like, okay, so I'm going to commit to, I'm not going to game the system the other way. I'm not going to make bots for good. I'm not going to go and like you know Google bomb, mm. <laughs> you know, young South Asian women uh, <laughs> into the search results. Instead, what I'm going to do is anytime I make media, I'm going to, you know, unless there's a reason to do otherwise, like I'm, I, my default will be someone who looks like me, because if everybody did that, then the inputs to the model would be more representative of society. But as it is, our cognitive biases are unconsciously influencing our activity online, which feeds into the model, which then produces results that look like our biases, but sometimes even a little more so. And then that further conditions our biases. And so we get into this this cycle, this mm-hmm. vicious cycle of biases getting worse <laughs> over time right. if we don't um, insert some kind of correction. And that correction could be like my student only choosing images that represent her and her culture and, and her, her demographic. Um, or it could be legislation. Or it could be changes from the data scientists and, and the machine learning engineers who are are constantly refining the algorithm. Um, it could be filters on the data that it draws from to eliminate hate media or to to just check every once in a while how many of those pictures of doctors are men and women, how many of them are you know various ethnic groups, what ages are those professors in those those, mm-hmm. those image results? Because we have real data. Most of these companies now have the ability, at at least in in a very rough way, to infer that information from the imagery because of all these (laughs) pieces of data we've given them, because of all the images we've uploaded to Facebook with our names and our ages and our locations tagged. And we do have the tools developed by the same people who have made these algorithms that we might complain about from time to time. We, We have the ability, we have the data science, we have the data to correct some of these problems or at least analyze them mm-hmm. and and bring them up to society in a way that uh, allows us to have a good conversation about it. And I think that's that's where we really get um, caught, where we have the tools and the data we need to fix the problem, but our, our heels are dug in about things kind of like adjacent to the problem. We never actually stop and just, just talk about like what we could do that would be really easy and give us a win right now mm-hmm. um, so that things aren't quite so dire. And then we can cool down to have the deeper discussions about the more insidious or the more complex problems. 
And that's a great segue to (laughs) the next topic is because we have these algorithms, because people know that these algorithms exist, in particular, Google's search engine algorithm, like what, what brings things to the top of the search results? We actually, there's a whole industry built around SEO, search engine optimization. And it's because these algorithms exist that somebody who's trying, what's the game, that algorithm. And so now we're getting to the point where uh, it's a, it's a meta level (laughs) where, you know, sit back one, you know, one, one meta, one meta step from this. And now it's like, now I know how the world works and now I want to kind of game that system. Talk to us a little little bit about how, how that works and, and where that's gotten us. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I referenced some stories in the book. Some of these are, are pretty well known, you know, Google bombing kind of good. This has been around for a long time where you, you search for something and then you scroll down to, you find the result you want. You click on that and you do that a few thousand times and you get a few thousand people to do it. And that changes the search results for other people as well as SEO. Like you put certain words or phrases in your your uh, website or, or even in the metadata of the page. So no one even sees it on the web page, right. but it does condition how the search engine responds to it. And, you know, the, the history of the web has been a history of coming up with a new trick and coming up with a new way to detect or filter out sites that use that trick and then come up with a new trick. You go back and forth, you know, it's, it's um, I mean, it, it's an industry, not because it works. It's an industry because it changes uh, mm-hmm. Because you constantly need to be read. Otherwise, it would just be something everybody does. It's like right. putting a Facebook uh, photo preview tag in your web page because that's pretty static. That's just something you do. There's not an industry of people right. getting you know preview photos in your blog posts on on Facebook. Um, it's the change, the arms race, really that that has led to that becoming um, an, uh, a thing, an industry. Alongside that, you've got a situation where to address that problem, people are asking for transparency, Mm. right? How how does the algorithm work? And what about that is unfair or illegal or should be illegal? What's ethical? What's unethical? Where can we draw those lines? How can we have, you know, like kind of the digital algorithmic version of like a a truth in messaging Mm. kind of of rule or or limits, you know, ethical guidelines or, or actual um, regulatory limits like we would have in like TV advertising or something. But down on the other side, you've got saying, well, look, if, if we make it all transparent, then the bad actors are going to know exactly what to do to game it. And they're going to find some vulnerability before we can patch it. And it, that's always the question in cybersecurity. It's a question in, in intelligence, um, even like things related to um, election hacking types of operations. If you tell everyone about it, then the bad guys know that you know, they know mm-hmm. how you know, they know how you found out, now they know how to avoid detection next time. Right, right, right. But at least they know what not to do. Right. And and that's that's the same thing with these algorithms. You you tell people how it works in precise detail, you're you're telling people how to game it. Right. Um, and so that's that's not a simple problem to get around. Um, so people have advocated like white hat hackers and public private partnerships. I I'm definitely um, kind of in the camp that sees that as a, at least a possible solution to the problem where people are kind of like certified to, to deal with this thing privately and kind of, you know, try to poke the holes, find the vulnerabilities in context that won't uh, lead to ethical problems or, or, you know, actually people getting hurt, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, physically, financially, whatever. But, uh, but, it, but it's not simple. It's, it's not easy. And it, it does. And, and, and the longer we don't move forward because of the complexity of it, the, the more 
the more of a problem it's going to become and the harder it is uh, to deal with once we finally sit down and, and get started. Yeah. Well, and and I, I don't want to say that in a way that sounds like people aren't doing anything, um, but mm. <laughs> because they are, platforms have certainly made gains in the last few years. Um, the government's more aware of what's going on. They, they're, you know, and, and around the world and, and citizens and journalists, like people are a lot more savvy to the issue and making steps in the right direction. But the slower we move, even in the right direction, uh, the harder it is to keep pace with um, the fastest moving of, of those who would seek to, to use this in unethical or illegal or dangerous ways. This, this, as I was reading uh, part of your book about this, the, the the thing that came to my mind is that we see this in software engineering a lot, where you you got to be careful what metrics you use, like how, what you know what mm-hmm. you use to to judge whether something is going well or not. And it always comes back. <laughs> I always bring up this Dilbert cartoon, and the pointy-eared boss is you know saying that you know okay, so you know our our software quality is bad, so we're gonna have this program where for every bug you find, we'll pay you $10 and then everyone goes, yay. And they're all, you know, and he's, they're all, you know, really happy. And because, and then, you know, Wally basically says, I'm going to write myself a minivan this afternoon. <laughs> right. right? <laughs> Cause they've just, they've just basically incentivized them to create the bugs so they could fix them and get the money. And so, you know, yeah. So I'm totally with you. <laughs> you know, you got to be careful what metrics you use to, to track something. Cause as soon as it's understood what those are, then someone's going to gain those. And it, you know, so it's a vicious cycle that catch 22. Right. Um, and, and that's where that unconscious bias of well-meaning people comes in again, because not only did you have a group of not fully representative people who didn't think of everything that could go wrong <laughs> creating it, but you have the same kind of not fully representative group of people who can't think of everything that might go wrong vetting it. Um, and, and right. sometimes they might be the same people or at least taken from the same pool of people. And, and that's, that's where, you know, the imagination of people who would seek to do harm or, or could see the, the, uh, without the same ethical kind of fence, uh, around them can see so many other ways where they can make money or, or gain influence that, you know, especially if you tend towards the techno utopian or you're just lo- young and haven't seen a lot of mm-hmm. horrible things in your life yet. Um, <laughs> you, you don't, uh, you just don't think of. Right. So, okay. So now let's get to the more darker part of this and maybe get closer to what you, <laughs> what you, what you're covering in your book. And that is, so we've, yeah. we've got to just talk about the happy stuff. So far. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. This is all been the good part. This is the good part. Now we're getting to the bad part. Let's go there. <laughs> you know, okay. so, you know, now that, now that we understand, you know, the, maybe the benign and unintended consequences from some of these things. Now, how about the intended consequences? What, how is this being used to shape our political and social views? And with that, we will have to wait for part two to, before we get into that side. And let me tell you, it is really interesting. And, you know, we get into, so we, get into how these techniques and algorithms and and all this attention getting technology and methodologies are used to manipulate us in ways that we really would rather not be manipulated. We'll talk about the elections of course and just kind of generally how this stuff can can be used in the future to coerce us into doing things that we might normally not want to do or, or perhaps coerce us into not doing something we would do. Depending on what you're trying to do, either one of those could be valuable, depending on who it is that's trying to do the coercing. So anyway, it's just fascinating. And if you like the first part, you're really going to like the second part. So you definitely want to tune in for that. 
and you want to check out the book for sure. Uh, it's called Data Versus Democracy. You can find it on the A-Press website, or of course you can find it on Amazon.com or other bookstores online, or hopefully book brick and mortar as well. we got to keep those guys alive <laughs> as long as we can. So it's, it's a great book, and I, I highly recommend it. Um, one other thing I wanted to, make, to mention before we go, uh, I've updated my best and worst gifts for 2019. It's a kind of an annual thing that I do. And so you might want to check that out. You'll find that on my website, firewallstonestepdragons.com. Basically, I kind of go through some popular gifts and, and, and talk about the privacy and security implications of those gifts, which are not often covered. If you go to podcast.firewallsdon'tstopdragons.com, the podcast website, you'll find uh, the show notes for all my shows, and you can find past shows on there as well. And uh, you know, on there, I've I always try to make links to the stuff we talk about in the show. So, of course, there's a link there to the book, uh, to Chris Schaffer's book. There's a link there to uh, Chris Schaffer's current website, uh, and uh, I'll have a link there to my upcoming best and worst gifts. Uh, I know the link's going to be. Hopefully, the article will be there. But yeah, it should be there by the time you hear this. So that's going to wrap it up this week. Tune in again next week for part two. You definitely don't want to miss that. Uh, you can go to the podcast site and uh, subscribe. That way you will never miss anything. And, you know, as I always say, while you're there, if you don't mind, drop a review on it. I would very much appreciate that. So until next week, everybody, stay safe out there and don't get caught with your drawbridge down. Bye.